Eric Kaplan. I'm a TV writer and uh, I have a PhD in philosophy, although I'm not working as a TV writer right now because I'm on strike. And I'm Taylor Carmen, and I'm not on strike, but I'm a philosophy professor and I work on things like uh, European philosophy, existentialism, hermeneutics, phenomenology, that sort of thing. And I think about terrifying questions like the one you're about to hear on this podcast, which is called Terrifying Questions. Terrifying Questions and how not to be terrified by them. Um, and by the way, so Taylor was in the process of explaining various ideas by using his hands, like he wanted to show that two ideas were connected and he'd interlace the fingers of his hands. So this is our first video podcast. Hey, um, everybody. And it's going to be in video and you can see what we look like. And some of you might be like, okay, <laughs> I don't need to hear any more. <laughs> some of you may be bitterly uh, disappointed. Yeah, yeah. but um, that's actually related to what I want to talk about. Because if you did that, I think that would be shallow. Um, exactly. And, and I want to talk about, uh, basically the terrifying question is, is there any reason to be deep rather than shallow? Very good. Um, and that puzzles me. And Taylor, I have a little bit of a longer intro today. Good. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay, here's how it's going to go. When I was about 15, I spent a lot of time, I was a sort of melancholy youth, and I spent a lot of time rereading uh, the following poem, which is called uh, Ode, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood. Um, I encourage you to read it, but I'm going to read a little bit of it in order to sort of tiptoe our way into this question about what it is to be deep, and if we know what it is to be deep, is it a good thing? I've heard of this. It's Wordsworth, right? It is by William Wordsworth. That's right. Yeah. Um, and we're going to start with the beginning and then we're going to jump to the end just so that we don't spend too much time reading a whole long poem. Uh, but I encourage you to read it because it's great. And we're going to get our Wordsworth. We'll, yes, we will. Well done. Okay. <laughs> there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth, and every common sight to me did seem appareled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore, turn wheresoe'er I may, by night or day. The things which I have seen, I now can see no more. The rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose. The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. The sunshine is a glorious birth, but yet I know where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. And now I'll go to the end, which brings in this issue of depth. And O oh, ye fountains, meadows, hills, and groves, forebode not any severing of our loves. Yet in my heart of hearts, I feel your might. I only have relinquished one delight, to live beneath your more habitual sway. I love the brooks which down their channels fret, even more than when I trip lightly as they. The innocent brightness of a newborn day is lovely yet. The clouds that gather round the setting sun do take a sober coloring from an eye that hath kept watch o'er man's mortality. Another race has been, and other palms are one. Thanks to the human heart by which we live, thanks to its tenderness, its joys and fears, to me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that too often lie too deep for tears. Hmm. So I really love that. Hmm. And when I read it, I feel like he's saying something real, that there are thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And I feel like it awakens such thoughts in me, 
thoughts that will lie too deep for tears. Although honestly, it kind of makes me cry a little bit. So I don't know if they are too wow, deep for tears. That's interesting. And, and I guess when when I hmm. when I read this poem as a teenager, as a fifteen year old, I thought, well, that's what I aspire to to be in touch with that level of life, which is deep mm -hmm. and to have thoughts that are too deep. And now I wonder, like my terrifying question is, is that just a lot of nonsense? Like, are there thoughts that are deeper than other thoughts? Mm. Um, and one of the things that prompted it in me, well, one thing was just, you know, worry about, you know, narcissistic illusion, like to just sit there and think, well, I'm having thoughts that are too deep. Yeah. And like, how do I know they're deep? Maybe everybody, everybody everybody's thoughts are equally deep. <laughs> what does it even mean? Mm. And actually, I read an essay by a, a very smart philosopher named Agnes Callard. And she said that she was anti deep thoughts. Yeah. And she sort of wanted thoughts that can defend themselves and don't sort of, I think she viewed it as bogus, like the claim that a thought could be deep, and you couldn't just say what it meant struck her as bogus. I think that's not quite right. I think what she said okay. in, I think what she said in that essay was deep thoughts are fine, but they're kind of a poor substitute for thoughts which can defend themselves in dialogue okay. and conversation. And you might you might be consoled with a deep thought if you have to get by with that. So I don't think she thought there's no such thing. And I don't think she was really completely against them, but I think she thinks they're substitutes for thoughts in conversation with others. Um, a poor substitute. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. a very different way than I evaluated them because I thought they were better Me too. than thoughts I could defend. In, oh, you think so too? Well, we might I agree about this. Conversation but, with others. Yeah, right. we might end up agreeing, but it's going to be a long, interesting path before we get there. Okay. Okay. I look forward to this path. Yeah. Um. So the first step on this path probably should be, okay, what is a deep thought? Exactly. And, and is it, and yeah. deep is like, it's one of the three dimensions of physical space. There's height, <laughs> breath and length, right? Yeah. Or something like that. Or depth yeah. is just height. Tall thoughts. If you're standing, like if you're on ground level, yeah. the um, lofty thoughts go high above your <laughs> ah, level. Lofty. And deep thoughts go below your level, but both of them explore the third dimension, while long or wide thoughts yeah. don't. This seems like nonsense. Like yes. this can't be what we're talking about, right? <laughs> right. It seems like lofty and deep might be two ways of saying the same thing, but um... I believe in Latin, altus means both. Oh, really? Altus means something with a uh, a high absolute value in the third dimension, whether it be up or down. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Did you know that the centigrade temperature scale used to go the other way around? So zero was boiling and hundred was freezing. Oh, why did they change it? I, I well, because I, it's crazy. Is it too late. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, this is one of those cases where the person who changed it was right. Yes, exactly. Right, don't okay. you think? Don't you think the higher number well, should be I the mean, higher I think, I yeah. think, sure, it's never occurred to me. Well, I have that, a friend who uh, described this on an episode of Nova, a fellow friend of mine from graduate school who's a philosopher of scientist, and he said, finally, somebody said, we've got to stop this nonsense, <laughs> turn it around. So, yeah. But, you know, Agnes Callard in that essay, at one point when she's talking about deep thoughts as fundamental, mentions axioms in geometry. And I thought, well, those are fundamental, but those aren't deep. I mean, those are almost just stipulations uh, of right. self-evident things, which you would think are almost not worth saying because they're so obvious. And I don't think that's what the Wordsworth had in mind. I mean, those are not too deep for tears. <laughs> they're not. They're uh, yeah, not. Yeah. No. Um, although, like, let's unpack a couple of different possible meanings of deep. Yeah. Like one, the axiomatic sense of deep seems to be if you're going to move those around, a lot of other stuff is going to be moved around too. Yeah, they're like foundation right? stones. Yeah, they're foundation stones. Yeah, and that's a cool thing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like some cool some in deep its own thoughts. Way. Yeah, some deep thoughts I think are a little foundational. Like I think um, 
Like when mm. Heraclitus says, mm. um, everything flows. Yeah. Well, that's pretty foundational. Like if right. you want to, if you want to talk about anything in metaphysics and you accept the axiom that everything flows, yeah, uh, right. it's going to kind of affect that stuff it because be. you're going to be like, what is it that doesn't flow in this situation? Yeah. Well, nothing because every, everything flows. Um, uh, and what I really like about that essay by Agnes Callard is at the very beginning, she mentions, this is not her experience, but some other philosopher said they had this experience of being on an airplane and the person next to them says, what do you do? And you say, I'm a philosopher, which is always a little dangerous because, sure. I mean, Nietzsche was a philosopher, Plato was a philosopher. We're, I'm a philosophy professor, but in the philosophy profession, we say philosopher like someone says chemist or sociologist. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the person on the plane will say, what are some of your sayings? <laughs> oh, and it's like, those you... are supposed to be deep because you savor them. You go, oh, hmm, isn't that deep? I thank you for that. I'll put that in my pocket and I'll walk away with it. So I do think Agnes had in mind bogus you know, material for an inspirational poster or a fortune cookie or something that that's a cheap bit of sort of and but it's a conversation stopper. It's the sort of thing you digest and you savor and you think, oh, wasn't that deep? And a lot of those could just be BS or cliches or platitudes. So, I think one of my professors, Donald Davidson, I think had one. Hmm. He said of everything, there are an infinite number of logically independent true sentences that are true of it. And I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. Is that deep? That seemed pretty, uh, maybe. Uh, is it deep? I think it might be deep. Maybe. <laughs> I think you've got a deep saying on your hands there, Donald. Yeah. yeah maybe. Uh, do you, do you, have you ever um, heard anything or said anything that you think you could answer somebody sitting next to you on the airplane? <laughs> what are some of my sayings? <laughs> right. Um, not that I come to mind, although I have the feeling that I've said things in the midst of a conversation where I kind of wanted to write it down because I thought, oh, that was right. nice. Yeah, I, I, I didn't write it down, presumably, because I don't remember what they well, were. But I, I like mean, the there bomo. Is the, I like the occasional There is bomo. the pearls yeah. before swine phenomenon, right? There is like, that. <laughs> if the person seated next to the philosopher on the plane is not themselves deep, yeah. then maybe they won't appreciate the depth of your deep thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can't resist telling a story about a student uh, of uh, Thomas Kuhn's at uh, MIT. So Thomas Kuhn was famous for talking about different paradigms in the history of science where they shift so much that the problems being addressed are not even the same problems uh, in one era of science and the next. So this uh, student was asking for recommendations for a Chinese restaurant, and Kuhn gave him this name of a Chinese restaurant that he thought was very good. And so he went to it, and he got the fortune cookie, and the fortune said, progress means exchanging old problems for new problems. Wow. And he went back to Kuhn, and he said, ah, now I know why you recommended that Chinese restaurant to me. <laughs> and Kuhn apparently said, no, now you know where I get my ideas. <laughs> So maybe that's deep. Maybe that was a fortune cookie that was pretty well, deep. Well, Kuhn yeah. was pretty fast on his feet. I'll he say that. was, um, yeah. So, what do you, um, what do you think of this? Um, mm -hmm. Exchange. It's not really an exchange because one of the participants was long since dead. But the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said, "If a lion could speak, we oh. could not understand him," which I thought was pretty deep. I think. But that's then deep. I was in a class yeah. with John Searle, and he said, "I don't know that that's true." Couldn't he say, <laughs> "I like this roast goat better than this raw goat"? Um, and then I thought, I could imagine that too. I could imagine a lion saying, I'd like this roast goat more than this raw goat. Well, and me, I would understand him if I was, a, say, a zookeeper or something. Like, all right. That's very John Searle. I, I mean, remember John Searle saying, Wittgenstein says that there's countless language games. And Searle said, no, there's not. There's seven. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I'll tell you what they are. And those are the seven uh, kinds of speech acts. He would have the sort so of So that's a little Stallard-esque. Yeah. Like, it's, it's going from the thing that seems pretty deep. It, it also reminds me of a, of a joke from, uh, from the comedian uh, uh, Hannibal Burris hmm. that somebody said, that was fucked up on so many levels. Mm -hmm. And he's like, what are the levels it was fucked up? <laughs> name them. <laughs> yeah, name, list, them. list the well, levels upon which it was fucked up. I think Agnes Callard's view, it really, and as she says, is Socratic. I mean, it's really the primacy of dialogue and conversation. And what often happens in these platonic dialogues is that somebody mentions, you know, Zeus or Athena or something like that. And then Socrates says, oh, really? Well, what about why did Zeus do this? And why did Athena say that? And it's this, you know, it's a totally different style of conversation. You don't accept references to the gods or to Homer or to some story. It used to be you'd recite from the Iliad or the Odyssey and people go, oh, okay, all right, that ended the conversation. And nothing could end a conversation with Socrates. Nothing could end the conversation. Definitely interminable, ongoing, net, you know, interrogation. No wonder so many people got pissed off at Socrates. Mm -hmm. Some of those early dialogues are maddening because they never seem to make any progress. And I think Agnes Callard is totally devoted to that Socratic conception of philosophy as ongoing, rational argument and discourse. And a poetic sort of turn of phrase is going to be, like I, we said before, a poor substitute. I think the if a line could speak, we wouldn't understand it is deep. And I think Searle was missing the point, which is that a lion wouldn't say <laughs> in these words anything like, I prefer this goat to that thing or not. It would do what lions do, which is growl and purr. And I mean, we can't even imagine it. I think the whole point of that saying, which I think that saying, I'm calling it a saying, uh, that remark that's kind of profound about it is that it makes you realize you have absolutely no conception of what it would be for a lion to speak. That's how I understand that. Uh, That's interesting. Because it's a lion. I mean, after all, all these children's cartoons with animals talking, it really requires a suspension of disbelief because they do not have any of the vocal apparatus to do anything like speaking like what we speak. It's oh, a, my God. Tell me about it. Yeah. I used to have an animation studio, ah. and very often we were trying to portray a dog smiling. Ah. Well, dogs don't have the facial muscles to smile. <laughs> right, yeah. And cats, you can't even see their mouth, really. Yeah. So anytime you try and make a cat smile, you're doing like a CG realistic cat. Interesting. You're doing something pretty weird. Dolphins look like they're always smiling. And they I don't look think, like they're always smiling. I don't think right? they are, yeah, yeah. Right, so do crocodiles. <laughs> and if you think they're smiling, you're, you're, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. Exactly. I think we should take a quick break and then come back and resume the discussion after this quick break. Oh, that was quite a break. <laughs> that was one of our best breaks, I think. That was a, quite uh, a break. It was yeah. a fine break. But in any case, you promised us a journey. And one lookout that I feel we've reached on this journey is that there might be deep things and deep thoughts, but it's always possible to reject them. It's always possible if someone says something that is a candidate for depth yeah. to be like, I'm not going to go there. Yeah. I refuse. Because I, I almost feel there's a certain... Um, like in the Wordsworth, which I love, to me, the meanest flower does often give thoughts that lie too deep for tears. I think there's a confession of vulnerability. Mm. Like he's sort of saying, I'm on the ver verge of tears and I'm not telling you, mm. but I'd kind of like you to go along with me. Interesting. And, and I think if you reject that overture, if you say, what are these thoughts, Bill? What are these thoughts that lie too deep for tears? Let me see if they're true or not. 
you're not going there with him. And I think that's probably true of all deep thoughts. I mean, I think, or deep sayings or deep <laughs> feelings. Like, I, I, yeah. I, I'll put that forward as a possible a possible conclusion. I think that's right. And I think the problem with a lot of deep thoughts, and I believe in deep thoughts, deep feelings too, is that if you do articulate them, you're in real danger of coming up with a platitude or a cliche mm -hmm. or something that people will say, yeah, yeah. And I do think that's actually what's maybe paradoxical about them is that it may be the deepest thoughts are not articulable at all. And once you put them into language, you end up saying something either silly or unintelligible or hackneyed. And it requires some charity or sympathy of interpretation to see what somebody might be trying to say when they say something that on the surface of it sounds like nonsense. That's the thing I heard via Bert Dreyfus that Terrence Malick said about oh. his films. Oh, he really? said... If you take any of my films and try and put it in words, you will get something that's a cliche. Interesting. Like like the moral of um, Days of Heaven is don't throw love away. Huh, yeah, right. And yeah. It, it, it almost seems like, like it could be that deep thoughts are only had by certain people and most people are shallow and don't have them. Or it could be that deep thoughts are had by everybody, in which case you wouldn't expect a deep thought to be something that you say, oh my goodness, I've never heard that before. You'd be like, yeah, that's true. Um, so like, why is familiarity a sign of shallowness? Well, I mean, I'm not sure I believe that it is. I just think it's... Uh, right, that's an idea that yeah. floats around, yeah. right? You know, I think we should distinguish deep thoughts from deep feelings because I think everybody's feelings are in some sense deep if they have feelings at all. Okay, what's the difference between a deep feeling and a shallow feeling? I guess I'm thinking deep feelings, I have a kind of privacy about them. It's like um, mm. like we can be at a concert and listening to music, and I think some people in the auditorium are deeply moved by the music, and other people are going ho-hum. Okay, so I, I maybe this is an orthogonal thing. See, I was going to say, if we're walking past someone who's begging on the street of New York, mm. and I say, oh, that's the saddest thing I've ever seen. Mm. And I don't do anything about it. And mm. then I'm like, five minutes later, I'm like, where should we have dinner, Taylor? <laughs> that was a shallow feeling. Yeah, yeah. But if it if I, if I it enters into my heart and I'm like, oh, my God, and I decide to like, you know what, from now on, let's go and spend two nights a week volunteering for the homeless. Then uh, it was a deeper feeling because it because it got deeper into my uh, psychological uh, makeup. And geared into your actions, yeah. It geared into my actions. It wasn't, and so in my mind, superficial means you just say it, and deep means it actually affects your life. But, you know, I think that when you see something like that on the street, and it does really shock you or disturb you or it's unsettling, you don't necessarily want to shout it from the rooftops and announce it and talk about it right i mean sometimes well there is so there's one thing there's it's affected me deeply yeah it affected me deeply means yeah it's going to change my behavior yeah it's it's kind of maybe. like the axiom right it's changing my axioms yeah maybe that's right maybe it, it shifts everything a little and maybe it also means you'll never forget it and maybe it means uh -huh. it'll yeah it's a bit of a commitment to how you're going to live your life maybe. like that real yeah. thing you should change your life yeah and I think, you know, I think uh, some people, I guess Heidegger sometimes says this, like some of these things, you know, maybe the most appropriate response is one of reticence, because you don't know what words would be adequate to this. Like, what could I say about this that would be adequate to it? Uh, if I just said, oh, that's a sad, that's pathetically inadequate somehow. And so I think sometimes remaining silent is seems like the appropriate thing. After all, when people talk about things that really do deeply affect them, death of loved ones or something like that, 
they often don't want to talk about it. And it would be crass to talk about it in front of a big group of people at a party. And it's private. It's personal. So I think incommunicability is really crucial to depth. I think they're they're connected. And that's why I guess I think, I mean, kind of agreeing with Agnes Callard's picture in one way that, um, you know, the shallowness, as it were, uh, of conversation is precisely that it's explicit and it's open and it's ongoing and you articulate and you demand answers and you ask questions you don't back off you sort of press you interrogate and um that's the opposite of depth and like i you said she's not against that kind of so shallowness maybe is the wrong word because it sounds uh, pejorative but that kind of surface level explicitness uh now deep thoughts well explicit and implicit seem to be pretty close metaphorically because if it's explicit it's unfolded yeah latin uh-huh. plicare is folding uh-huh. and if it's implicit it's folded within uh-huh. Interesting. right so that seems to be a, a depth or it's sort of like a depth metaphor it's a cousin of the depth metaphor interesting interesting the reason sometimes i don't like the word implicit at least in philosophical discourse sometimes it sounds like well uh, if it's implicit, that means it's the sort of thing which you can make explicit. And once you've made it explicit, ah, you've, you've got the real thing. I prefer the word tacit, which means silent. Tacit. Tacit. Silent. Yeah, the silence. Although is... although it's interesting because if it's tacit, it strikes me that it's the kind of thing that could be spoken. Oh, maybe. Like, maybe like is is a river tacit or is it just a river? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there may be a there may just be no best language for all this. Um, I think, though, before we jump yeah, ahead, okay. I do wonder Here's a possible connection uh-huh. is that uh, uh, speaking commits you to further action. Hmm. And if you're on the fence, you might want to keep it to yourself. <laughs> but oh. if you're not on the fence, ah. if you're like, hmm. the most important thing is like, like to not let anyone live in poverty in a rich country. Hmm. And you really think that and you're really committed to living your life that way. Uh-huh. Would you feel the need to keep to be reticent, or would you just say it? Oh, I see. Well, it's something that could be said. I mean, uh, it could be said. I think this takes us back to the question of whether everything can be articulated in sentences mm-hmm. and words and so on. So I let's see now. Uh, so deep thoughts, deep feelings. The deep thoughts. Uh, I do think there's some that are what people call deep thoughts turn out not to be. Um, like what's an example? Oh. Um, you should I, I what I know you should live a purpose driven life or some you know or you should make your bed or some <laughs> you know or now, is that not rules for is living. that not deep because it's false <laughs> or or what exactly <laughs> it's um yeah what makes it shallow um I think sometimes deep remarks or deep comments are at the, the again maybe this is sort of picking up where Agnes was saying somebody at the end of a conversational sort of move will say something that's supposed to be the conversation stopper. It does seem like you come to a deep thought. It doesn't just fall out of the sky. It's like uh-huh. the result I, of a journey, and you sort of wind up realizing something. It's like... Um, I, w- the, I was thinking, like, the platitude, I think, is something that is often shallow because it's false. The person hasn't thought too much about it. Like they'll, Like somebody will say, it's not hard to be nice to everybody. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, that sounds good. It's like, really? It what if hard. you're in Nazi? Ger- what if you're in Nazi Germany? Should, everybody includes Hitler and the and the heads of the Gestapo. Should you be nice to them? Yeah. So it's sort of like 
So that's not true. It's not true that you should be nice to everybody. And the person who thinks it's true is being shallow yeah. because they just haven't thought of the counter Right. I think that's right. You yeah. Know. So shallowness um, is sometimes, yeah, uh, it's too easy to say. It's like, lazy. Some, certain laziness. Laziness. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's what Agnes thinks about some deep. He doesn't like laziness. Deep he likes thoughts. Hard, it's kind of lazy. hard work. Yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. taking a rest and sort of figuring, OK, we'll rest with that. We'll rest content with the wise saying and that'll, or perhaps that, it's perhaps it's a lie. Perhaps it's a little bit like a, a bit of political or or Madison Avenue propaganda. It could be a lie like, or it could be. Like, I'll just say yeah. everybody should be nice, even if I myself not always nice, because that everyone will think I'm nice because I said everybody should be nice. But here's a tricky right? case. I do think there are yeah. things that are maybe both cliches and deeply true. I, I'm a kind ah. of I'm not a total enemy of the cliche, because even though I think using cliches can be a lazy substitute for thought, I do think sometimes mm -hmm. we forget why they became cliches. Oh, give an example. Like, I think the Dalai Lama was asked about Buddhism, and I think he said, um, look, the whole point of it is be kind to each other. And I thought, actually, you know, that's that's there's a depth to that even though it sounds obvious and maybe even trivial and i don't know if it's quite a cliche it's not quite a the definition of a cliche but it does sound simple-minded and cheap in a way but i also think it's profoundly right mm -hmm. that that's a, that's a deep moral aspiration which is to somehow be compassionate be kind don't be needlessly cruel it's something here's what i think it's something that actually if you think about it can ramify and expand and change your vision of everything right. if you let right. it. And so it's a little seed of something that will actually potentially change how you view the whole world and your life, yeah, and that's what makes it deep. Beautiful. Um, Another thing I, I do think mm -hmm. is, is, is it's more grist for my mill that, like, to hear a deep saying, you have to be willing to go deep. And if you say, Dalai Lama says, be kind to everybody, that's not true. What about... Um, if someone steals mm -hmm. from you, are you not allowed to tell them not to yeah. steal? Well, Dalai Lama right. might have a pretty good answer to that. And if you think he yeah. doesn't, that may reveal more about your limitations than His Holiness's limitations. And if you just thought this was a proposition that was purporting to be true of all factual states of affairs in the world, no matter what the conditions are, then you misunderstood what he was saying mm -hmm. completely. Yeah. Right. Um, so in other words, be kind to each other. It doesn't purport to be answering the follow-up question like when and to everybody and always and under what conditions and wanting to sort of you've misunderstood the spirit of it, which mm -hmm. is to internalize this, maybe meditate on it and let it seep into your actions and your attitudes. I think that's deep, even though it can sound like um, something almost not worth saying. And somebody could say, yeah, yeah, OK, yeah, I know that. I know that. Let's move on. Tell me something I don't know. And, There's something I always uh, thought was pretty deep. That was a statement by Moza. And he said... Mm -hmm. Whenever two people disagree about something, it means they don't really understand each other. And I've heard, I've oh. said that to people and they said, well, that's obviously not true. And I'll say, see? <laughs> <laughs> that's good. You know, but that reminds me of something else I heard. I think Ian Hacking somewhere said, um, if you can make a list of 10 different things that two philosophers disagree about, and you can specify them, you can be sure that they agree about almost everything. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because the real disagreements in philosophy are ones in which you can't even quite locate where the disagreement is. I mean, I know that I've had this experience with friends where we're arguing about something, and 
even isolating, figuring out what it is we disagree about, we can't agree about it. Oh, interesting. But if you can find, maybe I should have said 10 things that the philosophers themselves agree that they disagree about. Agree that about. they disagree. They, they agree about every, everything. Right. <laughs> um, so there's incommensurable disagreements are the interesting ones. Right, the lion and gazelle dialogue <laughs> right. might, might not get anywhere, yeah. Right. But I think something about deep thoughts, here's another thought about deep yeah. thoughts, which is that what I recognize as deep thoughts are the ones that really admit of expansion and elaboration. So they do contain something which is turns out to be a distillation of a lot of thought. Uh, like I think that Wittgenstein remark is actually a distillation of a whole bunch of really interesting things oh, about so maybe language it's a and dense, speech and expression. It's a dense thought. Yes, that's right. And in fact, and that's why it may be poetic. Um, when Heidegger says that thinking involves a kind of poetizing or dichten. He's using the German word for usually translated as poetry, dichtung. But when Heidegger says the essence of art is dichtung, in English that sounds a little weird because it sounds like he says the essence of art is poetry. And then you think, well, why isn't it architecture or music? Yeah. But what he means is that it's dichten. Dicht means thick or dense or condensed. And I think that the... Condensed, condensation. I think it's condensation or distillation. And I think that makes more sense to say all art has that quality, that a lot is contained in a little gesture or expression or movement or something that makes it very different from stuff you just make use of, which is like exchangeable and manipulable and so on. You get this word or this tone or harmony. Right. Like if I say ibuprofen is better for toothache than Tylenol. Yeah. What is lacking from that? Why Why is that not distilled? It's sort of distilled. I mean... It... But it's information that's transferable and translatable, and um, you don't lose anything in translation. Oh, but transferable and translatable, that's a new thing. We haven't talked about that yet. Uh -huh. We were talking about but... distillation. I think you never step in the same river twice. I don't know why that couldn't easily be translated into, into Swahili. Like, it's, it's step, <laughs> yeah. river, never. Those are ideas that don't seem to be intrinsically well, Greekish. I don't want to be a pedant here, but he didn't actually say that. So oh, what did he, he say? Actually, so what he actually said, what's often repeated as he can't step into the same river twice, is in the same river, different and different waters flow. Okay. But you can say that in Swahili, couldn't you? <laughs> okay, you probably can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Notice, now this is not a question about English versus Greek, but I think it's important that he said different and different waters flow because he does say it twice. Interesting. And, but in the same river. So it is the same river, but in the same river, different and different waters yeah. flow, which really means that while there is change and flux, there's also stability and continuity and identity, and these things are interwoven with each other. So uh, I think that's deep. Pedantic, I think that's deep. Yeah, it is. I that's very that's deep. deep. And yeah. you just said it in English. But let me give you another example of something that seems to me deep, even though it's not a philosophical idea, but it okay. is a poetic line when Romeo says, Juliet is the sun. Now... Strictly speaking, that's um, false. <laughs> oh, <'cause laughs> because she's not, she's not made a, of gas? She's not a big ball of gas burning okay, in sure. the center of the solar sure. system. But what is it saying? It seems to me it's saying something which can't really be said in any other way. He thinks, now, he thinks she's hot. <laughs> that's not <laughs> well, quite what it means. Well, it is the east and Juliet yeah. is the sun. I think what he meant was he was in darkness before she showed up. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, it well it can mean that. It can also mean she's. Is it a heliocentric? Was Romeo a heliocentrist? <laughs> I was just wondering this. I don't think Shakespeare could have probably been advocating the Copernican view of the solar system. I don't know system. if he could have assumed that in his audience. I think I don't it's think like your I don't life think so is either, dark but... and cold, and then the sun comes up. Yeah, 
But there were plenty of religions, like going back to Akhenaten, who regarded the sun as God. So yeah. you can regard the sun as the center of your world, even if you don't, if you're not yeah, Copernican well, it's and pretty think important. it's the it's center pretty important. of the solar system. Every, yeah. All the plants so, come from it and so forth, right? And it's the source of life, it and is. it feels good, and it's radiant, and you there's you you'll never be able to look at it and see it's all its features because it's blinding and uh-huh. it's passion and I mean there's no end to what you could have you'd elaborate there's a it's a nice example of saying trying to say uh that metaphors aren't just similes because with a simile uh life is like a tube of toothpaste uh you can presumably whatever I meant by that could be specified yeah, it, it can <laughs> uh, keep you from losing Whereas a metaphor is kind of uh, un-unpackable because it's so rich. I always thought it was interesting that in uh, in Chinese and classical Chinese, um, uh, many of the key philosophical concepts are conveyed by ideograms. So mm. goodness, mm. how, that's, that's my three semesters of Chinese uh, coming uh-huh. in handy, um, how is, a, is an ideogram which shows a mother and a child. So if you want to say oh. what is good, what is the what yeah. is the meaning of how? Well, you know how it feels when there's a actually a mother and a child, uh, uh, kind of like that. But in a sense, it's like Juliet is the sun. Yeah. How exactly yeah. is it like that? Is it like you need to get diapers? No, not like that. You know, <laughs> but in certain sense, it's like that. Right. It's appealing to something which you will never get your mind around completely, like right. which is your relation to your immediate caregiver, parent, child from both sides. This but that's something... what good is. Dear to you in a way beyond words, or yeah. too deep for tears. Yeah, or maybe. also yeah. like, hey, how, if how's your town doing? Is it doing good? Well, people are able to have families. That's pretty good, uh-huh. you know. Oh, um, that's interesting. Because uh-huh. a lot of these Chinese thinkers were were pretty political uh, in their approach. Uh-huh. But uh, here's the thing that's troubling me, Taylor. Yeah, we've been talking about what depth is, and now we're talking about succinctness of expression, because, like. Couldn't you be long-winded and deep? Yeah. And and one of the examples I'll give is, did you ever read that book on the shoulders of giants? I don't think so. I know the phrase, but... Uh, yeah. So you, there's a phrase that if I can see further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. And the author of the book, I think his name was Solomon, um, tried to investigate who said that first. Oh, I read something about this. I read an article yeah. version of it or something. Yeah. And it turns yeah. out in a fascinating way that's not a well-posed question. Ah. Because as you go further back in time, mm. people are expressing this idea. It's just they're doing it in a more long-winded way. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, it's usually <laughs> so, attributed to Newton. And I think... That's it, completely wrong. It turns out Newton that's didn't say it. That's completely wrong. Yeah. That, well, he yeah. may have said it, but he was quoting. No, I'm pretty sure so he didn't. Idea, I'm pretty sure there's... Oh, he, may, he didn't yeah. even say it. Yeah, okay, so. but had he said it, he wouldn't have been the first one by a long shot but the interesting thing is then you go further back and you find people saying it's interesting to notice uh, that when we compare the ancients and moderns uh, uh, the ancients may <laughs> have said worthwhile things but the moderns have said even worthwhile things but the moderns in a sense are a little bit like dwarfs standing upon the shoulders of giants whose worthwhile far vision yeah, yes, is based upon where they stand so two so, and a half pages later you get yeah, yes yeah. yes and then and yeah. then in the effort to be catchy writers over the centuries distilled it and distilled it and distilled it but i would argue yeah. if that thought is deep yeah. And I think it's moderately deep. <laughs> it's not the deepest thing I've yeah. heard. It's not the shallowest either. It's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Um, I don't think uh, it became deeper when it was expressed more succinctly. I agree. I think it just became more succinct. I think I think there's the sort of uh, rhetorical or stylistic kind of deep, mm-hmm. which is the condensed. Maybe that's better uh, sort of deep 
poetic expression or something like that. But absolutely, there's, like, Kant is, I think, very deep philosopher. Um, he had a few bon mots, but actually the depth comes through only if you plow through hundreds of pages of... And here's here's where I think the depth gets manifest in the how things ramify. Uh-huh. Because the more of Kant you read, the more you see how astonishingly consistent it all is. I mean, there's contradictions, too. But you can get the systematic vision, and you think, oh, a lot was going on at a subterranean level that I was not getting when I was reading just sentence by sentence. And now I see how things hang together. So I think people who are deep thinkers have this kind of vision. It's a sort of synoptic vision of how things are hanging together. And that's depth. And and now the way the way that often okay. comes out in your interacting with them, talking to them or reading what they write, is that they see farther than you do in terms of consequences uh-huh. and moves that can be made dialectically in the game. So I've had this experience of talking to people and realizing afterwards they were five or six moves ahead of me in seeing where all these sort of thoughts lead, uh, where they go. It's not like they can see the underground kind of uh-huh. map or maze of ideas. That's a kind of depth. And it doesn't necessarily lend itself to succinct bomos. See, Agnes Callard often also characterizes depth in terms of, like I say, conversation-stopping poignant expressions. And I actually think that's that's not a lot of what depth is about, in, at least in philosophy. Uh-huh. Or... Or I guess, you know, other other media, too, where somebody's really deep. It's they've got a vision of things. Here's the way I would want to put it. I do think an intellectual vision is like actual vision in that it uh, it's not easily convertible into a string of sentences. Or it's en- endlessly convertible uh-huh. into strings of sentences. Maybe that's what... Um, what did you say about, yeah, the Davidson thing? There's an indefinite or infinite number of sentences that can be true of something. I mean... The, Anything logically independent sentences that are true yeah, of any Yeah, I see, object. right. So, um, so there's a way in which I think deep ideas keep giving birth to more and more expression, and they can sometimes be captured in a few phrases, but not always. I mean... Uh, well, that's one of the things Wordsworth is obviously on the track of, because he wants to say that whenever he looks yeah. at a flower, yeah, it reminds him of how life comes and then life dies and it reminds them of how we don't know where it's all coming from and it reminds us of how we were once young and felt connected to the flower and now he's older and feels less connected so so he does sort of feel that this whole poem is an attempt to express this feeling that he gets all the time looking everywhere and it's all interconnected Uh so so i think that's right I like your formulation. Could you formulate it again <laughs> in a pithy, in a pithier, in um, a pithy way? I was saying that uh, there's an aspect of depth is its kind of indefinite extensibility or elaborability. But you also said that when you're talking to the deep thinker, that everything is interconnected on a level that's yeah, not obvious. Yeah. But if you ask the deep thinker, what do you think about... Um, stock market fraud (laughs) like the shallow thinker will be like well i'm against it because it's against (laughs) the law and then you'll be like well what about you know things that are good that are against the law in a place Mm. with bad laws and like oh i never thought about that before so so that's not a very deep thinker but if someone's answer is something that affects what they think a human is Mm. and what they think Mm -hmm. justice is and what they think money is and and it's all deeply interconnected that's a deep Maybe thinker. if they said money is fraud, you'd think, ooh, that's deep. That's yeah. pretty deep because <laughs> if, like, I don't know if you're right, 
But if I follow you, I'm going to go to some interesting place or some deeper place than the person who just says, well, it's against the law. You know, what do you think? Do you think stealing property is wrong? And Pierre Proudhon is like, no, Uh property is theft. So having property is theft. Who actually gets it in a particular social situation? That's a more shallow question. I have to say, I came Um, rather late to this realization. I should have known it from a long time ago. But uh, when Elizabeth Warren was grilling this guy from Wells Fargo Bank about these fraudulent schemes to get people checking accounts they didn't need, and it really struck me that what she was calling fraud, which I think she was right, to this guy seemed just like innovative new products. So that's medium deep. It's not all that deep, but it was illuminating. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think, by the way, medium deep is, yeah. I think, a good a good piece of conceptual <laughs> equipment because I think I would yeah. kind of like to know what are the deepest thoughts, what right. are the most shallow thoughts, and, and how to calibrate, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one through seven on the on the depthness scale. I, I think that'd be I helpful. I think I remember somebody um, talking about this. They had this experience with Wittgenstein. Like, we're talking to Wittgenstein what they were impressed by was he seemed to know their thoughts better than they knew them. Like he he knew uh, exactly where they were going with some idea and he could see before them where it got to and he could sort of show them it got there and so then you'd have to go here, there and so on. And that kind of, it that's a kind of chess playing sort of, now that does sound dialectical. Sometimes people contrast yeah. clever with deep. Yeah, no, it's right. Um, and I'd imagine the very clever thinker might be able to know the consequences of my formulation. I, yeah, that's right, exactly. So the way I'm putting it doesn't distinguish the two, but I think with I, I, I can't defend that. But let me also I, I feel like, wait, 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 before yeah, okay. you because I think maybe I okay. can defend it because I think if um, if you understand the sort of personal meaning mm. of stuff like supposing somebody is some, sometimes you'll, you'll, I'll get the impression that somebody is always trying to prove that there's a right answer to all questions. And I'll be like, well, wait a second. That's because you want life to turn out in a sort of predictable, safe way. So I will say that this person's complicated um, intellectual edifice, trying to prove that there's a right answer to all questions on a more deep level is about safety Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in an uncertain Mm -hmm. world. Now I might be Mm -hmm. wrong, but I would take myself to be making a deep claim (laughs) <laughs> possibly incorrect, but I take myself to be making a deep claim about that person's approach to problems, and it allows me to jump over the particular complicated answer they're giving to a particular problem right yeah. now. So let's take a break um, and go deep into our souls and refresh ourselves <laughs> and then come back. About the Wordsworth Mm -hmm. thing, what struck me as interesting about that is that he's getting that deep thought. Does he call it a deep thought? Thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. He's getting a lot of that from this very sensuous, perceptual experience of the sun and the flower. There's a kind of surface that the world is presenting to him that's stirring up this depth. So there's an interesting relation of surface and depth going on there that I think is interesting all right it's not that he's seeing past the appearances in the world it's that the way things are showing up to him as appearances is generating this inner reflective kind of attitude oh by the way there is something i want to read which is amazing Mm -hmm. um because he's talking about um that he's gotten older and he's lost his childlike joy and he says oh joy 
that in our embers is something that doth live, that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive. The thought of our past years and me doth breed perpetual benediction. And you're like, that's pretty cool. You've got mm -hmm. perpetual benediction. But then he says something amazing. He says, not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed, mm -hmm. delight and liberty, the simple creed of childhood, whether busy or at rest, with new-fledged hope still fluttering in his breast. And like, not for mm -hmm. that? That's interesting. What is it for, Wordsworth? He says, not for these I raise the song of thanks and praise, but for those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things falling from us, vanishings, mm. blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized, mm. high instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing surprised. Mm. Which, which I think is pretty amazing because mm. you would have thought, oh, he's a romantic, he's going to be pro-childhood. Uh. And he's like, no, what I am left with is a blessing for the obstinate questioning of not feeling at home in oh, nature anymore. Interesting. And I was like, well, that's pretty wild. I, I didn't even remember oh, that. Very interesting. Pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of uh, connection with Nietzsche, who liked to say, now, I don't think he uh -huh. actually said this. This just occurred to me. Maybe this will be one of my sayings. It's the, it's uh -huh. the surfaces that are deep. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah, I do remember he said the Greeks were were deep, were shallow through depth. Ah, they were shallow yeah. because they were deep. Yeah, that's right. So I think Nietzsche was trying to get away from from a certain kind of romantic notion of depth, and that what the Greeks were great at. Yeah, it was it was it was depth and complexity of Christianity that got us sort of all wound up in ourselves. And I interpreted that aphorism uh, differently. I thought he was saying like, look at a um, look look at the Venus de Milo. That's amazing. But all it is is the surface of a woman. Why doesn't it show the um, the cells of her body doing the Krebs cycle <laughs> and her bile ducts? <laughs> well, because that's not really what we're in love with. We're not in love with the cells of her body and the bile ducts. So if we want to depict what we love about a woman, we should depict the surface. Uh -huh. Not because we don't know that if you go deeper, yeah. you'll find a lot of stuff, but that we're, we don't want to see that right. stuff. And that's a deep, a deep a deep understanding of life which leads to an aversion to being too right, deep. Right, right, right. That's what I thought I that see. meant. That's okay, that's right. Yeah, there's a lot of muck under there, under the surface, which you're better off ignoring, and it's the surface. Yeah, don't look at that. It's the surfaces which are beautiful. Yeah, beauty is on the surface because right. it's appearance and so on. So I like I like that part of Nietzsche. I mean, I think Nietzsche was also pretty deep, and he liked to say things that sounded deep, too. There's another aphorism of his. He likes aphorisms. He likes these bon mots. Uh, and now this is this is a tricky one. Women are considered deep. Why? Because one can never discover any bottom to them. And then he says women are not even shallow. Ah. I think as a statement about women, this is not deep. This is shallow and kind of stupid. <laughs> uh, right. I think it's kind of an incel. It reminds yeah, you of a 19th century incel. Yeah, it's yeah. just kind of like... Um, and and again, he gets this from Schopenhauer, and when Schopenhauer says these things, you say, ah, yeah, 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 this is just a misogynistic platitude. Uh, I think it's, on the other hand, at least clever and maybe deep about certain kinds of depth, which is just because something's unfathomable doesn't mean there's anything there. It means it could just be— Well, a, what would be an example? What's an example? Oh, uh— yeah, you can never you can never escape who you are or something like that. You know, right. That sounds like a And it's like you can't yeah. <laughs> or 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 what does yeah. it mean? Yeah. Well, that was a funny thing from uh, uh the movie Buckaroo Banzai. Wherever you go, there you are. There you are. We've all heard that. Right, right, exactly. 
Now, there's something right about that, I guess, and maybe it's worth remembering, and maybe it's a caution against certain kinds of escapism, but I don't think it's very deep. I think, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe I can. You know, Carl yeah. Krauss, who was a big influence on uh, uh, Wittgenstein, kind of a early Viennese Weisenheimer, yeah. um, <laughs> said that he came up with half-truths and one-and-a-half-truths. Oh, yeah, right, right. And I think one of those things is that if you take something shallow that everyone thinks is true and you just negate it, you'll end up with something kind of provocative uh -huh. and it remains to be seen if it's deep or true, oh, but at least it's a step in the right direction. That's like I'm gonna, I'm gonna read something from Wallace Stevens. Uh -huh. He says, beauty is momentary in the mind, the fitful tracing of a portal, but in the flesh it is immortal. Now, I find that pretty deep and provocative. I mean, it's obviously it's just a, an, an upending of the opposite yeah. idea, which says beauty is momentary in the flesh, but in the mind it is immortal. Yeah. But then Stevens is reversing uh -huh. it. And I, and I don't know if it's deep, but it, it kind of sends us in a deep direction because yeah, you know, it's so provocative. You know what? I think Oscar Wilde is the master of these kinds of one and mm -hmm. a half truths because he says right. things like... Uh, I live in perpetual fear of not being misunderstood. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and those are good because yeah. I don't know if they themselves are true. I'm not sure. But they, yeah. I think they send us in a deep direction. They're kind of almost you suddenly deep. realize. They're moderately deep, you yeah. Re you realize that, well, no, that's not right, Oscar. Right. <laughs> what everybody says that they're in favor of being misunderstood, but why do they care? Yeah. <laughs> but, like, what's so important about being understood? Yeah. So I, I feel some of those jokes prompt a deep reflection. Yeah. Are we coming to the end of our hour? I think hour? we're getting there, yeah. So um, okay. I think deep, what, deep... You sum it up. Deep is a many-splendored thing, and there's deep. There's different kinds of deep. There's different things that are deep. I think a person can be deep. Feelings can be deep. A thought can deep, be deep. A remark can be deep. I'm in favor of depth and i just i think the fact that there's bogus depth false depth vacuous depth pseudo depth shouldn't sour us to the whole idea that there are thoughts deeper than tears and that you can't get your mind around and you can't articulate but sometimes you can get close to them with a metaphor or a turn of phrase or an insight and yeah it gives you the feeling of getting under the surface where you can see things in a different light and that's i think so here's what i think about philosophy. I think philosophy aspires to that just as much as it aspires to dialectical cleverness and ongoing interminable conversation. I'm definitely not a Socratic rationalist kind of philosopher who thinks that the ideal philosophical goal would be interminable conversation with no conclusions or mm -hmm. sort of resting place. I, I think that would be hellish. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think I refuse to talk about it because it's deep. That can seem like a jerk move, right? But I refuse to not talk about it. That can also <laughs> seem like a jerk move. Yes, to me. exactly, and tiresome. Okay. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. So I, okay. I think there's an element of poetry in great philosophy, even if sometimes it's. Oh, here's a deep saying. Let me know if you agree with it. Number one, if you agree with it, and number two, if you think it's deep. Okay. Um, a corruptio optima pessima. The corruption of the best is the worst. Ah. Um. Yeah, I guess I, I I'll agree with that. I, I'll take it in the spirit of a of a. Yeah, as Swinburne said, lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Uh huh. Um, yeah. The idea that depth is something like a synoptic view of the world that reveals how everything is connected in an organic way is such a great thing to aspire to, but if you fake your way to it, that's pretty gross. Right. So yeah, that's the the best is that gross. is that deeply connected world, a deeply connected vision. But to 
to do a bad version of that is worse than not even trying. Yeah, something and it's, like and it's bad in a whole new way. Maybe you. It's a different say. kind of bad. Deeply bad. Deeply bad. Yeah. <laughs> There's another thing I should have mentioned a long time ago, which is this famous phrase from um, the Inferno, Dante's Inferno. I think maybe Paolo and Francesca. I guess it's only Francesca who's talking, but I I think she says something like, "There's nothing sadder than uh, remembering happy times uh, that you've lost, or something like that. Right. Looking back on times of happiness that you've lost, nothing sadder than that. Um, I think you might almost say the opposite is just as true. Maybe there's nothing more wonderful than remembering past happiness. And interesting. And some so some of these deep thoughts, I think that you can see their inexpressibility when you see that they're almost as easily expressed by their contradictories. Interesting. Um, yeah. So that's a clue that more is being said than uh, is actually being spoken. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. I thought this was a good one. And now people at home can see what, what we look like when we're wrestling with these <laughs> ideas. Our, our faces are, are tormented and our, we're reaching to the heavens to try and bring down I these ideas. I didn't do my everything is interconnected sort of. Okay. Because in, nothing in, our, in today's conversation was interconnected. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah but um, oh, oh, before we leave, which would you rather be? Uh, deeply wrong oh. or shallowly right? Oh, interesting. Um, I guess I'll go for deeply wrong, but I, I feel like right. it's a leap of faith I'm making there. Um, yeah, I maybe, think so. Maybe I think... deep, deeply wrong <laughs> is closer to being deeply right than <laughs> maybe, shallowly right yeah. is. Yeah, maybe there's not that much difference between shallowly wrong and shallowly right, because you're shallow in either case. You're and, shallow. You're too shallow. Yeah, maybe yeah. that's... The, it's, um, yeah. Uh, okay, something to think about. I'm going, I'm going with deep. Have we plumbed the depths? Okay. Yeah, I think we okay. have. Okay, okay. We've we've tried to plumb. We we plumbed a little. <laughs> Some plumbing <laughs> happened. Okay, okay. Peace, everyone. Bye bye. Ciao. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's produced by Amanda Eberhardt. The music and editing is by me, Taylor Carmen, and our cover art illustration is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.